0: Welcome back to the Female Footballers Podcast, everybody. My name is Cassie Gray, and I am your host. Today, I am super stoked because we have our very first male guest on. Uh, I want to make it clear that just because we're an all-female organization does not mean that we are anti-male. Many men help advance our side of the game and our allies, and today we have one of them. I'm really, really excited to introduce to you Greg Rubendahl. Greg uh, is... Currently, the director of coaching at Livermore Fusion Soccer Club located in the East Bay area. He has over 25 years of coaching and administrative experiences at all levels from the NCAA programs down to uh, through the college club system, uh, club soccer system, all the way down to his first role as a trainer of the U6 rec teams. Uh, In the last decade, he looked to transition from coaching youth teams to coach educator roles at both the club administrative level, as well as with various national organizations, including us youth soccer, us club soccer and us soccer. Besides having a master's degree in kinesiology with an emphasis in biomechanics and a passion for human performance, Greg holds a USSF A license and grassroots instructor license, as well as the premier DOC and master coach diplomas from United Soccer Coaches. He is currently enrolled in the Coach Educator and Education Development Pathway with the U.S. Soccer Coach Education Department in collaboration with FIFA to develop more coach educators to fill the need of coach licensing around the country. So without further ado, welcome, Greg. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I didn't realize I was uh, the first male within the podcast, so I'm I'm extremely honored uh, to be a guest on the show and even more so to be the very first.
0: Yeah, we are so excited. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people think that because it's an all-female organization and our name has the word female, that what we do is only for females or that we only want that uh, that gender. But that's not true. Everything that we do at Female Footballers is applicable to the male side. And we, uh, you know, 100%, our game would not be on our side where it is today without all the men involved. And you are one of them. With all of the, uh, the coaching experience, the Coach Ed stuff, I want to jump right in and and hear more about all of that. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about how you got into soccer in the first place as a kid, playing experience, all of that. I would love to hear a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah. So um, <laughs> growing up, I was the uh, run to the litter. You know, I was a small, small boy, um, played all different types of sports, uh, you know, from baseball and basketball. Uh, my dad was a all European track and field uh, a pole vaulter. <clears throat> but um, when we started, you know, when I was about five, six years old, I got into soccer because I was really small. I was pretty quick, um, you know, left footed, uh, you know, just right from the very get go, just the stimulus of, you know, a ball chasing after it, you know, getting by people it just kind of gravitated to it. Um, and I continued playing other sports, but soccer really was the one that uh, I fell in love with. Um, my parents are very service minded. Um both parents came from military family background. So my mom, uh my mom's father w- worked for um uh for uh, Lawrence Livermore Labs in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And so he was designing nuclear weapons in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh whereas my dad was um a mil- an army brat and he lived all over the world from Germany, France, and and all over the US. So they kind of had a pretty good view of you know, what it takes. And I think it kind of, you know, it goes back to a little bit of what my mom said, you know, you know, dad, why do you, you know, design all these weapons of destruction? He said, well, if I don't do it, nobody else will. And at least if I have control, uh, I know we're on the good side. So I kind of think of that as uh, my, my pursuit in, in soccer, they were um, administrators in our AYSO local club. Um, when I was about nine, 10 years old, Uh, We became too good in our area for any other, you know, AYSO team. So we decided to transition into competitive and travel soccer. Um, We started out in a police athletic league, which really didn't have the, uh, you know, the structure that they were looking for. So we went back to the rec program for a year while my parents helped design and develop the uh, first competitive soccer club in Concord. So DVSC, the My dad wrote the original charter and was one of the original board members. My mom was a registrar for them for 15 years. So back in the nineties, uh, when, you know, you had your golden rods and your player passes and, you know, all that stuff, you know, coaches would come to our house at all hours of the night, um, you know, and, you know, drop off their paperwork so that they could play on any given weekend. So, you know, from that, you know, just kind of had a a growth and I love for the game, you know, was able to see, you know, go into different places and play. So traveling uh, to foreign lands, went to Brazil uh, in 1995, obviously Um, the world cup in 1994 that we hosted was, was really special. And I think really catapulted the game in, uh, in the, in the U S and then you complement that with uh, the 99 world cup that the women won. uh, And it really kind of, vaulted us into where we see things today um I never really made it at uh, the top ODP level right uh but I did go off uh and play as a kind of a walk-on player at Loyola Marymount um but uh through from the time I was 15 to 19 uh I broke my own leg uh I tore all the cartilage in my knee I dislocated my kneecaps uh four times dislocated my toe so I actually spent probably two and a half years out of my last four years that I was playing at a pretty high level in physical therapy. So from that, just sitting in physical therapy, rehab rooms, I got, I was kind of science and math based. um, And so I just got really, really curious about uh, sports science and physical therapy and sports medicine. And and so that's kind of uh, what I was able to transition when I finally, you know, realized that uh, I wasn't going to be doing much uh, on the field figured out, you know, maybe there's a career just off the field that I can influence. So it's kind of my, my background there.
0: Yeah. That's super interesting. I didn't, and you're talking LMU LA, right? Not the Correct. Chicago. Okay, cool. Yep. Um, that is so interesting. So how did you break your own light? Like, how does that work? <laughs> I got to know. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> it's uh, it's called an avulsion fracture. So I went to go take a free kick. Um, it was my team versus. Uh, My best friend's older brother's team, which the goalkeeper at the time was a a guy named Aiden Brown, who played at uh, William and Mary, uh, the revolution and, uh, is now, I think the goalkeeper trainer up at Timbers, but I took this long distance free kick. And as soon as I planted my foot, my quad jerked back. And because the, the patellar tendon attaches to the tibia, it just kind of, you know, tore it off. And I, I wrote my, uh, what was it? My college essay on it. You know, when you open uh, an aluminum can and you pop the top, uh-huh. that's kind of what my knee did. So, oh, and, and so it was, yeah, so I remember laying there and everybody, you know, kind of surrounding me um, and, my, you know, my mom in tears and, oh, my gosh, what's oh, going on? And I just sat there uh, you know, telling jokes because of all the adrenaline and everything, I was just sitting there like, so, hey, so did we score, you know, just stuff like that, you know. Oh, my gosh. Out, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, a couple of things you said about your background I thought were interesting is the your parents being the first sort of group to start a competitive program in Concord. That's pretty awesome. And definitely, you know, I would say 80s and 90s were, were when a lot of the clubs that maybe started in the late 70s started to really boom. And, uh, you know, some of the more urban areas had those bigger clubs. But as like Concord's kind of one of those suburban areas outside of the San Francisco Bay Area where they all started popping up. And um, so you played all the way till the high school level in that club. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I I
1: don't think I was allowed to leave.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. And then uh, transitioning, you went to LMU and you studied kinesiology. Is that right?
1: Uh, Yeah. At the time there was no kinesiology program. So I actually graduated in a degree in uh, biology, chemistry, and physics, which was the closest thing I could get to pre-physical therapy at the school
0: oh my god uh, smart guy wow that's a lot (laughs) not just one but all three of them you know um so after college where where did you see yourself in the world of soccer did you ever take time away from the game were you able to travel and see outside of you know playing and kind of enjoy it as a fan
1: It's interesting. uh, In 1998, we had kind of a selection team, me and my friends. It was in between my freshman and sophomore years. And we ended up going to France for the 98 World Cup. And so we were actually staying at the Paris Saint-Germain training grounds. um, And we drove the van down to the Champs-Élysées when France played Brazil in the finals. So we were there on the street, 3 million people celebrating when France won uh, 3-0 brazilians the grac- most gracious losers of all time they're like they- they're great at winning but they're even better at not winning and uh and so sitting there and the next day was bastille day which is french independence day so that was pretty uh pretty amazing um oh, wow. because of that experience when i graduated from lmu uh it was uh january 2002 i bought a one-way ticket to barcelona uh to teach english as a foreign language because wow. I wanted to get a, uh, a TEFL so I could teach English in either Korea or Japan for the 2002 World Cup. So, so it all had
0: to do with soccer. <laughs> it all had
1: to do with soccer. And what I found out was you can't get a, uh, a visa to Japan or Korea unless you're in the United States because they buy a round trip uh, booking ticket. And I had just graduated from LMU, had no money. So I ended up in uh, Budapest, Hungary. And uh, I was teaching English there. And actually, before I even got on the plane, because I had a friend down there, um, I already had a job at an English-speaking soccer club called Buda Juniors that oh, was run cool. by like a a foreign Hungarian national team player who had played in England and, and had started up this expat uh, club up in the Olympic Center in the hills. So,
0: Wow, very cool. Our mentor director is currently playing internationally in Budapest, yeah. and uh, she loves it. But yeah, a lot of those players, that's kind of what you do when you're you got to teach English, right? It's like the, one of the, the uh, probably easier jobs to get, I would say. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's easy by any means to teach it, but yeah.
1: Well, and, um, and, I, and I think one of the things with that is, you know, it's, it's conversational, right? Yeah. Because I don't think you really need to know how to write in a structured sentence. But I think, you know, learning English is, you know, to be able to speak with other people. It's the same reason why I play the game, right? I can go mm-hmm. to any country in this world with a soccer ball and make friends. I don't have to know the language.
0: Totally. Well, and you know, in your bio, we talked about your passion for human performance and this whole side of the coaching education, which I want to get into in a second. And I would say, I'm curious if you're, it's interesting how your injuries led to an interest in sports science, and then maybe all of this traveling and getting to teach English kind of led to some of the educational background that you have. Uh, Would you agree and, and tell us more about that?
1: Well, yeah when I was a, a younger you know when I was younger in in a, in a teenager I was really introverted um, I love studying I love learning stuff and but more importantly I just loved to listen to people I didn't have really a voice growing up um, and so once after seeing all these things over time you know I kind of found my voice and it was actually it was actually i think when I started coaching around 15 16 going through the injuries but you know, getting in front of a group of young children and then with these big, bright eyes and smiles and anything you said, they just hung on every word. It actually, like, it empowered me. It was, it was my stage, if you will, you know, it Mm -hmm. kind of gave me that, that, that opportunity to connect with, you know, a group of kids. and, And I got addicted to that. I think it was just, you know, being up in front, connecting with them getting the most out of them um, was really something that, that I enjoyed.
0: That's so cool. So at what point, so you said you started in the, the rec, your first job was U6 rec. Tell us about a little bit of your coaching journey starting from there.
1: Well, it was uh, my mom had taken over my sister's under six team called Barney's backyard gang. And so (laughs) she needed a little bit of assistance. uh, And so I became the trainer for that team. So I was still fairly young at the time you know, to be able to associate with them. And I, at that, about that same time, uh, I was, I, I started a summer job with uh, anybody from Northern California knows the Zeman brothers soccer camps. And, uh, and so I started coaching, you know, doing anywhere from eight to 12 camps per summer. And that was my job. That was my summer job for like seven years. So, um, you know, and I was, I was really a specialist with the six, seven, eight year olds. Um, and that's, you know, so it was an easy job to hold. I only had to do it during the summer, you know, from September to May, I could do schooling. Um, and then even when I was in, uh, at university, I was working after school programs, um, at, you know, some schools in like Pacific Palisades and, uh, you know, in, um, you know, along the, the, the 101 or highway one in, in LA. Uh, with something with a company called Brit West Soccer. Uh, but it was you know just kind of it was an easy transition. It, it fit into my schedule. It wasn't you know eight hour grind days. It was you know two, three hours, get in, get out. Um, so it allowed me free time to be able to do you know my studies and things like that.
0: Absolutely. And I like I'm hearing the passion just in your voice for working with children, and I think it takes a special person to work with six, seven, and eight year olds. I think most coaches, uh, sometimes prefer the olders because it's easier to relate as an adult to older kids. Depends on the person, obviously. But uh, so tell us, did you stick with that age group as you started to enter more competitive coaching and and take us through that journey more of uh, after and how you got into more of what you're doing now or, or 10 years ago or so?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, I think everybody has a preference and a specialty, a specialization, right? So with just kind of my personality, my experience, um, uh, and my understanding of, you know, just kind of basic development, I prefer U12 and younger, just because they're all learning the game. Um, they're very, uh, they're very uh, able to, to grasp concepts very, very quickly. And I have pretty good patience, but also the ability to break down a skill or a concept in a way that relates... To a child, so again, when I was, you know, teaching English, you know, a lot of things that you'd have to say would be deliberate. So you were, you had to learn how to break things down to their essence so that you could see somebody actually grasp it. So I think with with young kids um, thinking about, you know, what is, what are the topics of the day that they're interested in? What are the cartoons? What are, uh, what's the the movies that are out. So all those things you have to kind of interrelate to them to get them to do stuff. So you know it's not you can't just pull them and say, come this way. You have to almost, you know, meet them where they are. Uh and it, and because they're that most excitable age, um, it really kind of, you know, I feed off them, they feed off me, uh, type of scenario. But also, you know, you can become, you know, you can turn into adult and tell them, hey, you know, you can kind of guide them and give them the character traits that you hope that they'll take on when you pass them along to, you know, coaches who specialize in you know, middle school, high school, or even, you know, college, college and pro.
0: Absolutely. I love that. You just said you have to meet them where you are, but also that you take the time as a coach to connect with them into their world. And I, I think I'm curious, I think a lot of coaches today uh, we have kind of a mixture. Some of the old school coaches really feel that that isn't their job. It's kind of this is my team. And as the players on this team, you're going to do what what my vision is. You're going to you're going to listen to what I have to say. And it's uh, it's kind of I'm the coach or the player. It's it's there's a separation. And and then I think some of the newer coaches and, uh, and younger coaches coming in are sort of more what you're talking about, where it's like, you know, this is our team. And I need to meet you where you are and you need to meet me where I am. It's a, it's a 50, 50 thing. It goes back and forth. And just like it's my job to get to know where you're at and what your interests are. It's your job to, to show me a level of respect and um, understanding for what I'm trying to do with all of you. Uh, So correct me if I'm wrong, but is, is that, do you see that? Do you see that there's a mixture of coaches or at being a DOC or director of coaching Maybe in your club, it's different. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it it starts with, you know, you have the Simon Sinek, right? So it starts with why. So what is the motivation of the child or the player to be in that environment? So knowing and understanding that is really important because you're going to be able to find different ways to move them along their path um, while you do that. So finding their motivation, knowing your own motivation and more importantly, your leadership strengths is going to allow you to, to connect with them. I think the uh, the old school, you know, carrot and stick taskmaster type coach, um, you know, I think they're a dying uh, breed, right? I think they're dinosaurs in terms of understanding uh, children, uh, especially modern society too, right? So looking at now, I can find two conflicting Exactly conflicting ideas on the internet. And I can go down one rabbit hole or another and believe myself to be correct, right? Mm -hmm. And and this, and I'm not just saying one, there's millions upon millions, right? So understanding where somebody is, where they want to go, and how you are gonna get them to where they want to go is, you know, something I would call more like, you know, servant-based leadership or transformational leadership. Um, because you're, you're not telling them what they have to do, um, versus what they want to do. So they have Mm -hmm. to want it. Right. And and you can't, as I tell people, you can't pull a donkey uphill, right? You can't, it will resist. So you, you have to kind of guide it. You have to coax them and, and get them along the path
0: yeah so what you're doing now as a director of coaching is how long have you been in this role and i'm curious how you transitioned from just being a coach to now being the head of a club because your philosophy i love your philosophy in coaching and i'm just curious how how you how anybody for our listeners they're interested in being on the administrative side like how do you get into that and how hard is that pathway
1: Well, if you like to work eight hours, uh, you have to love working 16 because that's kind of, that's, you know, c- growing up in the nineties, early 2000s, there was no DOC role. There was no full-time profession. So I worked seven different jobs to, to make it all work. And it, it was when I was a director of strength and conditioning for, for one of the clubs locally here, uh, in the Bay. And a, a director of position, a director of coaching position opened up in the U8 to U12 age groups, which actually at the time is U13 to 15. When it opened up, they were like, hey, you know, we like this director of strength and conditioning idea. However, this is a need that we feel you can fill. Um, and so I went into that uh, directly. And then so that's, it was kind of like, you know, uh, sweat equity would be the, the, the way I would describe it, you got to want to outwork and outthink your opponent. So if you want it, you got to go for it. And you can't, like, you can't say, oh, will you pay me to do this? You just, whatever you get paid, make sure you can cover your bills and take care of the people you love. And if you have extra time that you can give to developing yourself and your craft and the environment in which you are, people will, will recognize your efforts and they will applaud you and they will promote you. And so I think, in general, looking at like the common employees that I have, or the you know the colleagues that I have, is they only work as hard as they feel comfortable based on their compensation. And I think in teaching, coaching, education, you know anybody who's a teacher out there, you know you you're in school from eight a m to three pm. But I know that you wake up at five a m to prepare your lessons for that day. And then you're there grading papers or preparing for the next day until 5 p.m., 6 p.m., and then maybe even going home and doing more work. So I I look at it as that teaching. It's not coaching on the field. It's it's a all encompassing 24 hour a day, you know. Let me know where you are and where you're at uh, type of profession because it's it's a service industry, but you're serving people uh, emotionally and 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 socially as well as physically and, and and cognitively.
0: So that's like a huge part of, uh, one of the, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on this podcast was, um, I think there's stereotypes out there that a lot of big soccer clubs or even directors of coaching don't agree with that philosophy of, um, that it's social and emotional as well as physical and technical. And at female footballers were really big on whole player development and those four pillars. And when I met you, I think I was struck by, Oh, he, he's in it. Like he gets the, the whole player. He gets the, the mental side. He sees, like you just said, that, this is an all-encompassing service-minded profession, and I think that a lot of people also agree with that, not to discount that, but I do think there's some stereotypes that uh, exist in soccer and coaching that it's a two-hour, an afternoon job, and you just show up and you leave, and your job is to run them through technical and physical skills, you know, sessions, and um, I think that Unfortunately, that gets touted by a lot of clubs that uh, that parents kind of hear that, that their kid will get better if they're working nonstop on these skills. Um, And then that's what they're seeing coaches do sometimes at sessions. But like you're saying, there's so much more that goes into it and behind it. So tell me more about your own personal philosophy when it comes to whole player development, how you infuse that into your club as a director of coaching.
1: Um, I know that's <laughs> uh, a lot. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think the the main thing that I've I've uh, recognized and and you know kind of applauded and and elevated in the last couple of years is not necessarily looking at people's deficits and their weaknesses and focusing on them and trying to make them the most whole you know well-rounded human, but rather look at people with their strengths, their personalities, and their identity and understanding that what they actually believe about themselves and how, and how you can accentuate that. So, you know, really identifying their strengths, right. What their needs are addressing the needs. Right. And, and there are things that you don't need to learn uh, as a player, right. If I'm a, if I'm a left back attacking left back, I don't really need to know how to hold up the ball with pressure on my back to turn, spin, and shoot, I don't need to learn that. Now, I, when I'm young, I may want to develop multiple skills and, and things like that. But in terms of priorities of needs, if I'm going to be a left back, I need to be the best left back. So that means running, you know, long distance, you know, r- running with recovery runs. It's it's tackling. It's uh, understanding. So with with that, I think you know, getting players. To understand themselves, what their skill sets are, and more importantly, to identify um, uh, individuals within the soccer community, whether that's inside their club or professionally or internationally, that they can look up to so that they have a player role model characteristic that they're looking to achieve, right? Like, what is it about this person? So, if I ask any 10 any year old boy right now, who's your favorite player? You know at least three or four years ago is Ronaldo Messi, right Now and so that's you know, but you're talking about two of the greatest players of all time and that you know to be like that person like you can achieve some of that, but that's not necessarily fully realistic, right? I'm five foot six. Ronaldo can't be my favorite player if I'm going to emulate him. M- Messi can in some capacity. Um, but there are qualities within those players that you're looking for. so identifying who is your you know who you want to emulate and connecting to the game uh i think is really really important um and and once you start learning about the you know the positive negative characteristics of of all players and then just knowing how you can grow into the game right developing that passion going out there you know going to live games um one thing i will say um, and this is, you know, one of the most important aspects, if not the most important, is that female uh, uh, viewership for female games is extremely low at the youth level. And it's a matter of going to the games, being there. Um, there's not a lot of opportunities to go watch games. So but even within your club, can you get your U8, U9, U10 ladies watching your U15, U16, U17? Ladies' teams, they do not need to go to a professional level. Um, you know, is it the high school games that they're going to? There has to be community, social connection, and buy-in. On the the male side, there's the professional sport kind of system that you know just is Americanized and bought into just naturally. Um, but even then, uh, young players don't necessarily go to those professional matches. And if the the women's game is going to grow, a there needs to be more professional uh, growth uh, opportunities for players, as well as for viewership. Um, Because, you know, trying to fit in a a college game between August and November, when it's the highest season for soccer, you know, trying to fit in a game. And that's the only, you know, really, really high level uh, you can go see in your local community. It's just, it's almost impossible, right? And because of the way the NCAA is, that's the only time they play, right? They, they play a couple of games in the spring that are just kind of, you know, off games. So the more we can grow it, you know, develop it. Um, now there's the emergence of light of the, uh, the summer, the women's summer leagues that are, they're that popping up. But again, those are short-term seasons that are family time for the most part, right? That's when mm-hmm. families are going off from in June and July, when they can actually go watch, uh, watch the high level. But Um, I think, yeah, yeah.
0: I I think you brought up such a good point. And I definitely want to transition a little bit into this whole female side of stuff. Um, Access and representation is a big part of what we talk about at female footballers as well. The whole role model side of it, mentorship side of it is what we promote. Um, And I couldn't agree more. And I loved that you said the younger age groups need to be watching the older age groups within a club and that it's not just about this elitist level of soccer. And I think, um, like you said, it's very American to look to the professional level, the U.S. women's national team, and they can only do so much. They can mm-hmm. only play so many games in different cities so the girls can go access those games. But mm-hmm. I think what you touched on was sort of a, there's a lot of, um, I don't, for lack of a better word, this is a controversial word to use, but... Um, there's a lot of complaining in a way on the girl's Mm -hmm. side, being a female, like we, we do complain that there isn't a lot of access and representation. And I personally agree that, that there needs to be more viewership uh, or, excuse me, more access on television to all sorts of games. But I also think you touched on um, this notion that there's a lot of girls that are choosing not to go to games and, Mm -hmm. um, and it's a chicken or an egg. Like, obviously it could be that there aren't a lot of games to go to. You could definitely play that side. I mean, we went to the earthquakes game on Sunday for Wando's last game. And my daughter kind of looked at me and she's like, how come we never come to the girls games here? And she's eight. And I was like, well, there are no girls games here. And so that's part of it. But it's also my job as a parent, if I want to give her those role models and, and access we have San Jose State women's soccer. We have Santa Clara right here. We have Stanford. And granted, like you said, it is hard to fit those games. in. a lot of the time, they're 7 p.m. on a Friday or, or 3 o'clock on a Friday or 3 o'clock on a Sunday when we have games and, and stuff like that. So there's there could be excuses. But it's also, um, you know, how many people are putting themselves in the position where they do it, you know? Like they actually go and, and bring them there. And so the idea that you – you actually like bring the girls to the older girls games, that's more doable. That's easier. That's a great place to start. So for parents listening, I hope, uh, or coaches listening, if you coach a younger girls team or an older girls team, that's something to think about for sure. I love that.
1: Yeah. And I I think within any club, any type of bigs and littles uh, program that you can create where players, uh, older players give back to the younger players is going to be Immense, right? Um, a uh, mutual friend of ours, uh, Coach Lou. Okay, yeah, we love One Lou. of the most phenomenal uh, leaders of Little Females, and she she has uh, she's had at least that I know of four events with her older, you know, U seventeen, U eighteen players, and her U ten players, where they've actually come together. They've they had pizza parties, they had Halloween dress ups, they had and they connected with each other. And these little girls look at them like they are professional players. So you don't need to see professional sports to understand that when you're that old, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18, you can have a massive impact on an eight, nine, 10 year old. That's what I learned as a 15 year old coaching five-year-old girls. Mm -hmm. That's what I learned. That's why I got into it. That's why I got addicted to it, to be honest. And that's why I do this. So like, and I, and when I was 10 years old, there was no MLS. The Blackhawks was the only team in the entire Bay Area. And what came out of the Blackhawks was, you know, the 1990 World Cup players and the first generation of MLS players in 1996. Mm-hmm. There was no professional, you know, it was like an amateur team that they would compete in the US Open Cup. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that was only 30 years ago. So, yeah you know, for for you who are younger than 30, it's probably a long time for you, but it is, you know, not even one full generation. Um, And I think that's the optimism that I have because the people that I grew up with are now parents and, and they're club leaders and that we can actually, you know, 30 years from now, what you're seeing in the MLS, maybe USL, like it should be like that times, you know, in half the time for the women's side, because A- We're World Cup champions consistently. We have the best players consistently. We have the most resources, you know, across the board. Um, But it really takes the investment of us recognizing it and creating those opportunities where for those 15, 16, 17-year-old Olivia Moultries out there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you had a 14-year-old super talented player who had to sue the professional organization to be able to play. That to me is mind-boggling.
0: It was such a, we had our, one of our first couple podcasts was on her and, and we had kind of a debate on our staff about, about her. And it's that notion of just because it's new doesn't mean it's bad, you know, just because it's a different path doesn't mean it's bad. But from a mental standpoint, and a, as a teenage girl, having been one it's also a lot of of that pressure. And luckily, I'm, I'm good friends with a girl that trained her and I played at Cal with and she was just mentioning like all the different support systems that she had and that made me really happy. If those supports are going to be put in place for girls that young to to leave the game and go pro at that age then I'm all for it. It hmm. just the, the system has to be set up to support them in a mental capacity. And I think certain avenues and cities in America have those clubs that have those supports and certain ones don't. So it's just tricky. Yeah.
1: Well, I, and I would say that the Tim, the the Portland model with the Timbers and the thorns is probably the only city in America that could support a player like that in a moment like that. Right. I think, I think it's probably the best place to, to, have to have gone in that regard.
0: Totally. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was curious as you were talking, how, what's the, um, do you only coach girls? Have you coached both, uh, you started with girls. Like, tell me a little <laughs> bit about like the I guess percentages of who you've coached yes. in ages.
1: So when I was in grad school, <laughs> interesting enough, you mentioned Wando. I, w- I entered graduate school after I came back from, from uh, Europe teaching. Uh, and I entered my, my biomechan- or kinesiology program. And I was teaching the soccer classes. And I wanted to work with the men's team. Wando was on the team at the time. And also a couple other guys who I played uh, who were just a couple years younger than me who were playing on the team. And I went to the office and knocked on the door and said, Hey, you know, my name's Greg Rubendahl. You know, I'm a coach. I'm teaching the soccer classes. I'm a new graduate student. I'd love to help out. And the coach said, you know, season just started, you know, we're good right now. Um, you, know, you know, we're not really all that interested. I was like, all right. So I walked three doors down, knock on the women's door. Hey, my name is Greg Rubendahl. I'm a master's student. And it was Kim Sutton. So Kim, like by far one of my favorite humans in the world. So anybody who has the opportunity to work with her, you are lucky. Um, And she said, you know what? I'm real busy right now, but let me come to, you know, one of your soccer classes, you know, check you out and we'll see what happens. So she came unannounced to one of my classes and I'm, you know, going and doing my stuff. And she's like, Hey, you know, I watched your class, love your energy, would love to have you come out to the women's team. And on day two of me volunteering, she said, hey, we just lost our goalkeeper trainer. Uh, can you train our goalkeepers? I said, well, I'm five, six, and I know everything about 10 positions and nothing about one. Which one do you think that is? And I, but I said, I can learn anything. So let me study goalkeeping and, uh, and get after it. And so for two years, um, all I did was study goalkeeping. I did my, my master's project on goalkeeping. Uh, I trained. I had a, a biomechanical analysis and trained myself to be a goalkeeper. And I had wow. you know all different uh, levels. And it was the same time that Wando, you know, they ended up losing in the national championship. Um, that same time frame that I was there at the at the the university. So I started with uh, with with women's uh, sport. After <clears throat> after that experience, I kind of transitioned into. Uh, you know, I started the club soccer team at Chico state, and that's how I kind yes. of became involved into club soccer. Cause I was teaching these soccer classes, seeing massive amounts of talent. I was like, you know, one of the students came up to me and was like, Hey, can we start a club team? I was like, I, I don't know, maybe like, <laughs> let me, let me do some research. And so now like it, it, I found out that there was this tiny little league and, you know, 15 years later, you know, I'm the president of that organization. And we have over a hundred teams and all of our teams are perennial national championship caliber from That's the West so coast. Cool. Which is
0: so,
1: and so when I transitioned after working with high level women, I, I realized, to be honest, I said, you know what? I'm, I shouldn't be taking jobs from women working with girls and women. I think there are other people that are better suited for this. I'm really good at U 12 and under boys or girls. Cause I, at that age, I don't really see much of a, Personality difference. They're kids. They're kind of emerging, you know, personalities. Um, they're all kind of the same. It's when they start hitting puberty that things start changing a little bit in terms of how their group uh, dynamics become. Um, but then, you know, when I came back to the um, to the Bay, I worked almost exclusively with boys teams, um, and I've kind of ping-ponged back and forth between uh, boys and girls, you know, different teams here and there, but. As a director, you know, at this point, uh, I work with coaches. So, you know, depending on who's in front of me, uh, I work a lot with parents. Right. And so I think it's more education of, uh, of the next, of of what the expectations of what this environment really is. Yeah.
0: You mentioned though, that like you were, you don't want to take jobs from females. So I'm just curious, like now that you're, you know, DOC of Livermore Fusion, like, you know, coming in, when you're looking at coaches, what do you, who's coming to you? You know, is it more male? Is it more female? Do you, do you look for females to coach female teams? Does that matter to you? Like, how do you feel about that?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I I look at it, you know, within a club structure, right? Um, And I, I went back and I looked at, you know, this year, our recreational program at U7 and Younger, uh, 60% of our coaches are female, both That's male awesome. and female. It's not, it has nothing to do with, uh, gender. It's more the age. Um, it might have something to do with the time that most of those kids are available, which is like a four to five thirty, before, and you have, um, more accessibility teachers or, you know, parents who are available at that time. Um, but as you go older, there becomes less and less females. And I kind of, I kind of compare it to an elementary school. How many males are in an elementary school staff? And, you know, give or take, it's about a three to one ratio, uh, you know, 75% female to male in general. Um, you know, I, I don't like, I don't like to talk too much in stereotypes, but yeah, know, as <clears throat> that just seems to be um, the commonality. Um, for uh, For understanding young ladies, especially in, everything that we've gone over in the last two years, I was already kind of trending this way. And then all of a sudden it got magnified is that understanding the psyche of a young female, you know, a young female is extremely important. And I think there needs to be a balance of that. So I, I, I definitely look for female coaches for female teams. However, uh, I would look for female coaches of male teams. If I, if I, if there was a, a plenty Uh, I would look for, you know, I would look for the best person for that group in which I have. So I have, I have, uh, you know, male teacher, male coaches with female teams and vice versa uh, with the programming because they're the best teacher for that specific age group. Um, I don't think, I think there's a lot of former male players who get a soft pass as teachers because they played the game. Um, And I think it's also the same case with uh, females that there's a lot of very high level female players who don't necessarily make the best teachers of the game and, but that they can grow into it. I think, you know, I think if you embrace it, anybody can jump into it.
0: Absolutely. I think that's such a great point is we as soccer players assume just because we're good at the sport that we can teach the sport. And I, being a teacher, I think there's a lot of teachers who see the perks of the schedule of being a teacher and they go into the profession for that. But like we started this conversation, it's a service minded profession, just like coaching. And if you're not willing to Put that service in. It's a it's a thankless job a lot of the time, as is coaching, and um, especially in today's day and age when parents have a huge um, handle on what their child is going through, and they're very involved more so than any other generation. I think being a coach is really really difficult, and um, and it, and I think yeah, I, I do think that there are, I I think I loved your point of whoever's fit for that position is who's best for it. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the gender. However, I also agree with you that uh, a female in the teenage group might, might, not, not guaranteed, like you said, stereotypes, but might connect well with a female who's been in that position before. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. It's the same reason why, um, you know, looking at like a high level, program at the high school level, and you want to get players to that next level, whether that's collegiate or professionally, you look for somebody who's walked the path, Mm -hmm. because there's a believability. I can read every textbook in the world. But I can't necessarily tell people how to behave or be if I haven't walked that path. So that again, why do I focus on u 12 and younger, because I was an exceptional u 12 and younger player. And I've walked the path as a coach and as a teacher, and I know my skill set and what I love about that age group working with them is the same thing that I love about the game as, as a coach and a teacher. Um, how much,
0: how much of, of what you do as a DOC? So like, let's say there's a, a really messed up kind of like a, the, the wrong coach for, let's say a teenage girls team, whether it's female or male, it doesn't matter when that's happened. Does that reflect on your position like you put them there or is it really like you you only have what you have to to work with right and i think sometimes parents get so upset like this shouldn't be our coach they don't understand our girls i'm sure you hear that a lot and uh and i think the frustrating part is as a doc just like a principal of a school you you have a small amount of of coaches to to work with right so that's a hard it's a hard job
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> well Coaching is not, you know. Coaching seems glamorous when you think about it, you know, in professional terms or even collegiate terms. You know, oh, it's it's a fantastic job. But the number of hours, the time, that I mean, thousands of hours. I've been woken up in the night, can't go back to sleep because I'm worrying about somebody else's child and what I've said or how I've done it, um, how I'm going to affect that. I mean, it's it's really really emotionally uh, draining. Um, to the point where, you know, 42 years old, I've never been married and I have no kids and people always ask me, you know, how many, how many, how many kids do you have this year? You know, how many kids do you have? I said, oh, well this year, 1,312, right? Like every one of these kids means so much to me. And so it is kind of a, an emotional thing. Um, when you're talking, there is a, a huge issue in terms of coach retention, just like there is referee attention. Because you look at it right now, there's so much stress put on the coach from external factors, right? The easy thing to do is to quit. Like, you know what? Remove yourself from the situation. Same reason why we have a massive issue with referee retention. Like I had to yell at a coach the other day for yelling at a 13-year-old referee who looked like he was maybe taught or, you know, refed 10 games in his life, right? He's 13 years old. And I have a coach going after him. And I said, look, like, don't yell at him. Who who are you? Who are you? I was like, I'm the guy protecting a 13-year-old from you yelling at him. Yeah. Like, he's not going to come back next week if I don't protect him. It's the same thing that coaches will do to their players. But even more so, you know, now that we just had our little youth stake up, you had adults, a lot of parent adults yelling at eight, nine-year-old children like they had just, you know, like they had just stolen something from them or they were out there like, you know, really physically altercating. And these kids are competing. They're reckless. They're immature. My job as a coach is to control them. And if I got to pull them off the field and talk to them, they're learning, right? But some of the things that I heard adults yelling at kids was, it's just not okay, right? Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it, it's, I, it, in my opinion, the game would have been a lot better if we had filmed it and everybody had been watching it on TV in their living room, yelling at the TV because the way they affected negatively the children by being so close to it was really disconcerting. It was very, it was, it was sad mm-hmm. because we went through an entire year plus where we weren't allowed to play. We weren't able to get kids out there. We begged to be able to do this and this is how we're going to act first, first run out of the gate. This is how we're going to act. Not okay.
0: Yeah. I love that you feel that way too, just because I being a teacher and, and equating it to coaching. Uh, that's the one difference I would say, you know, I'm not, I don't have a bunch of parents in my classroom. And so you can really separate some of that. And I think that's the hardest part about, about soccer. And I've, I've heard from parents being a parent of two competitive players. Like I see both sides. But at the same time, I I often see the coach perspective more than I see the parent, because I've, Mm -hmm. I've been a coach and in the game longer in that regard than I have as a parent. Um, But I've had parents like, why can't we sit and watch practices? And I'm sitting like, why do you, why do you want to? What is the ultimate goal of that? Is it because you takes you too long to go home and then come back? Okay, that's like a logistical thing, maybe. But are you going to critique the kid or the coach? And is that the ultimate goal like what's the point of that you know and I think the hardest part of all of it is that ultimately just like teaching the teacher the parent the coach the parent the director of coaching all of us are supposed to be a team helping these children and I mm-hmm. think unfortunately you know it becomes and I I see from the coach's side you, the need for support from the parents I see from the parent side the needs from support from the coach and it's just everybody really has the most best of intentions. It's just the emotions get too high in game scenarios. And it's so frustrating. And, um, and it's on all, it's all genders. It's all ages. It's all clubs. Doesn't matter if you're a small club, a big club, right?
1: It's all sports. All sports. It's not, it's not, the, the thing I always tell people is that coaching is the profession where the classroom has no walls. Mm -hmm. And that's the big issue. Like you're watching it and There are some great teachers out there, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of developing teachers that are still early in their craft that don't react well to stress. And we scare them away as parents. um, We make it very difficult uh, sometimes as directors and and it's, you know, the hardest part is going in and and being able to critique, just like you have with the player, give a positive um, uh, plan, for a coach to move them forward because all they feel is the negative. They don't look at the positive. And, and again, it goes back to why do they do this? Right. And I, I was writing it down. Cause we talked about like, you know, why what's, what's the purpose of getting into coaching? Well, you know, the, the word coach actually comes from a city in Hungary where they used to make carriages to get people from one place to another. So horse-drawn carriages. So that's where the word coach comes from. So it's literally where you get one uh, somebody from one place to another. So that's the origin of the word and the idea. So I thought you know these ten different wh- reasons why somebody's a coach: the parent turned coach, the community leader, the has been, the never was, right? The competitor, the visionary, uh, the nostalgist. So somebody who's trying to relive their, their glory days. The entrepreneur, which I think every parent thinks that we are, but I would say there's very few of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, The purist, who's just for the love of the game and the love of the community. And for me, it goes down to the philanthropist that I'm doing this to help the world, right? So I think there's a lot of different ways and and reasons why coaches get into this. Um, The one thing I will say is, I tell this to, to my classes, The one immutable that I found from parents is that they love their children. How they express that love is wildly different amongst (laughs) different parents, right? So, But they do love them and and they don't necessarily act logically because that love is so intense. Um, And I would say from a, a club director standpoint, I have to care about children more than my own club more than uh, the uh, community, like I, I look at it as you know, my paychecks come from one place, but I work for the children of my community. Mm-hmm. all places, all locations. I'm trying to bring them in, have a, a great experience through sport, right? Maybe make some you know make some memories, have some fun, you know, and then look back on it and say, you know what? when my child wants to play a sport, I want to get involved. If they want to play soccer, I'm there to coach if I, if it's needed. But let's have another positive experience because I had such a positive experience. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably as a, a club director, the thing that I have to impart in my coaches the most. It's not about player retention or numbers or championships or anything like that. It's about, can we get kids to start playing at three and not stop until their, their legs give out?
0: Gosh, I wish more DOCs were like you. That is so awesome to hear. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, like, I I think maybe just my experiences in the last few years have, have tainted my viewpoint that there are such great people like you out there. But I, I do think, I think, being in the position that I am with female footballers, I hear so much about the parents that are coming to me frustrated with the club or the coach or whatever. And, and coaches come to me frustrated with the parent or the club, you know, so I'm always just hearing that negative. So this is why I feel like we have a podcast is to talk to the wonderful people making a difference in their communities and, and beyond. And and what I love about what you're doing uh, currently is not just, uh, you know, affecting your community, but it's a lot larger than that. Can you tell everybody a little bit about your, uh, the coaching educator role you're in right now and sort of the higher level role you play within us soccer with coaching education?
1: Yeah. So, uh, one of the main issues, um, <laughs> teaching, you know, how long was your teaching a credential program that you had to go through?
0: Like nine months,
1: <laughs> nine, nine months. Okay. And yeah. an X amount of dollars, yeah. thousands of books and resources. And the professional development that went along that in soccer the only way there is no licensing to become a coach in most sports uh soccer in particular and the licensing is very very minimal. so because you don't necessarily need to go through rigorous licensing there isn't a lot of people who are out there who are coach educators so um and it takes a lot of energy to educate individuals you know along their craft and path um so, you know, as uh, right now, I'm helping in conjunction, FIFA has a pilot program where they're trying to create more coach educators so that there's more access to licensing um, so that they don't have to do things like I did, which is go to four years of university, two years of graduate school, and, you know, 15 years of experience to feel competent. So um, just need, there's a growing, um, a growing movement, if you will. Uh, within US soccer to spend resources to get more coach educators out there to help empower all of those parent coaches who are transitioning. I primarily uh, work with parents who are turning into coaches who really have no idea, maybe a little bit of sport experience, but they don't really have any inkling of the structure and organization it takes to be a a coach. Um, The other one is coaches who are at the beginning of their developmental pathway and they have high aspirations for themselves, but they're kind of just on the beginning of it. So mm-hmm. what's called the the grassroots licensing. So the introductory level is what I, I coach, I teach. And then the D license, which is kind of the first formal process, which is right now they're blended classes of 17 weeks in a row with a final assessment. So an on-field assessment as well as a personal development plan presentation, so they go through this whole process and they, you know, they they kind of get out there and you give them a little critique of you know things they can think about as a coach, and then they put together a, a pretty much an action plan for themselves, mm-hmm. and then you let them out into the world, um, and then they they got, kind of go along their pathway. So um, yeah, it's, I, I'm huge. Uh, you know, if I could help every director and inspire every director to work with the, uh, grassroots slash, you know, recreational level parent coach that will grow the game at the foundational levels, which will make, make the, it much easier to identify individuals who can move up your chain into the more competitive environments. And it's interesting last night I was at a, uh, uh um, a PDP event. So, you know, a high level player event. And I ran into a former coach of mine who was a parent coach who I said, you know, he knew a lot about the game and I got him involved in coaching like 15 years ago, 12 years ago. And I I forgot that I had gotten him into coaching, (laughs) but now he's, he's got two or three teams, you know, his sons are now 10 years older, you know, high level. And he said, "I, I just have to thank you you know, there were some things and some help that you had at the very beginning when I first started out, that was really, really important. And I forget the impact, you know, because those are really the coaches that I look for are the ones that care about the community. Um, As I tell people, I'm a mercenary, right? Like you bring me in because I'm a hired gun, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I would rather have individuals who care about the community, Uh, and will grow the organization because they're not leaving. Just Mm kind of like how my parents kind of grew that environment in Concord is I see that that's something that needs to be happening in every city, in every country around the world, Mm -hmm. right? And it happens a lot more often uh, globally because it's just part of the culture. Um, Here, we're just such competitors that like we can't, sometimes we can't even get out of our own way. When thinking about like, Yeah, we're we're fight we're fighting over, you know, we're fighting over uh, you know, pieces of the pie, and as I tell people, we fight over pieces of the pie, you don't not realizing you guys own the bakery.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: You don't like once once you realize you own the bakery, you don't need to fight over the same pie. You just make more pies and you make more different types of pies and you diversify and you grow it from there. So I think that's huge. That's a great important. analogy.
0: Yeah, totally. That's so fascinating. And I think, you know, um, I I love hearing from you, one, from the DOC perspective, but also just uh, an advocate for uh, female coaches, female players, the whole female side of the game, but also the grassroots community level is um, something we recently were talking about on our Instagram page. And we'd thrown kind of the when the NWSL stuff happened with the systemic changes that need to take place in U S soccer in general, everyone t- seems to think that things need to happen from the top down. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you and I agree that starting at that grassroots level really makes a difference from the bottom up. And I think um, you're doing it. And it's so nice to talk to somebody who's already, putting the work in. And it's like you said earlier, it's, it's a service job. It's, it's a thankless position. So those nights when a guy comes up to you, like last night, I know how that feels as a teacher too, where you feel like, Oh, I've made a difference. And, and that's why we do this. And I think we need more coaches who, who value that aspect. And I think you've created quite a great group of coaches and you see what, is, you know, the important things to pull out of coaches to put them in those positions. So I'm really excited that we have somebody like you on the U.S. soccer, U.S. club soccer, U.S. youth soccer side of things, making those differences, because there's also a lot of people that aren't uh, as great as a human as you are. And I think those are the, hopefully we can start weeding some of them out, (laughs) the old school uh, people that have just been around too long that need to (laughs) move on.
1: Well, I, I, you know, I, I think I, I'll probably have to leave it with this. Uh, My favorite book of all time, um, Voltaire, which is a French philosopher uh, called Candide, the very last, you know, this, this, this tragic hero goes through all these different chaotic experiences in their lives and, you know, looking for the answer to, to life. And the very last, uh, the very last phrase of the book is, you know, of all these things that you learned in your experiences, what did you learn? And, uh, the phrase is cultivate your garden.
0: Oh, I love that. I love oh. that. I'm writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. Um, very so, uh, so true. This has been so awesome to talk to you and hear about your story, but also, you know, what you're doing for not only your community, but such a larger scale. And I hope that our listeners are, we have a lot of coaches that listen. And I think that I hope the coaches who are listening, understand that There are some awesome DOCs, find the clubs where you feel supported. There are many out there, regardless of how you might feel. And remember your why. These are some takeaways from today's conversation. Absolutely. Remember your why, why you're in it. And parents, I hope if you're listening that you understand the importance of all the things that go into making the club your child plays in wonderful and that it's complicated but there are some wonderful people behind the scenes running it and making it special for your your players. So, um, we can't thank you enough, Greg, for being here today. I could talk for hours. I feel like about all (laughs) the different things. I don't think we got to some of the things that I had on the list, but we just might have to have you come on a second time and maybe go more in the direction of, uh, the female male situations, the, the female coaches. I think that we might have to do a second round to, to get to some of those topics. We touched on them for sure, but yeah, yeah.
1: Well, oh, it was, it was my pleasure. Um, great speaking with you. I mean, that's uh, uh, growing the game, uh, especially in the United States, creating professional opportunities for our young women uh, and creating the jobs and the infrastructure that will allow us to grow this and make it sustainable and and not just, you know, uh, a youth-based sport that peters out at 15, 16, but actually a profession where um, we can make big, big changes and influence lives, you know, for generations to come. So I'm excited. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. 2027, I hear that United States might host the Women's World Cup. That would be, uh, you know, be that would easy. be a dream. So, you know, hope. so if you're if you're out there, FIFA uh, 2027 in the United States, make it happen. Let's go.
0: Yes, let's go. That's Awesome. Well thank you so much. I really really appreciate you being on today.
1: All right. Thank you Cassie.